Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music Is Not a Genre, the interview edition. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Uh, if you'd like to support this podcast, don't forget you can go to patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre. The audio version you can listen to and donate at anchor.fm slash musicisnotagenre. My public hub is youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo, the official website where you get everything, podcast, music, and all of that stuff is at nickdimatteo.com. And uh, last but certainly not least, please listen to and support my band, rec at recarea.bandcamp.com. I am very excited today. I have a very special guest uh, here on this, oh boy, is it the 28th, 29th uh, in the interview series? Cannot remember. And that is pulling up my notes. That's the prep I needed. Kevin Stroud. Kevin is an attorney and podcaster who may be best known as the creator and host of the History of English podcast. I do not listen to many podcasts. This was the first podcast I ever listened to starting back in 2014. I binged it and it's still my favorite. He has written a book review for the New York Times and sometimes gives presentations about the history of legalese and legal English. Uh, the podcast website, which I will also put as a link and mention again at the end, historyofenglishpodcast.com. And you can also find Kevin and his wonderful podcasts on Patreon and the major podcast streaming services. Kevin, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Great. Me too. Me too. Yeah. You're a, you're a, you're somewhat of a celebrity in my household. So uh, this is very exciting for us. Is that because other people listen or because you're constantly repeating things you heard on the podcast? <laughs> exactly. Well, that's, that's the second one, really. That when, when I'm around and my kids are here or my wife and I'm like, oh, he just released a new one. I'll put it on. But generally it's me saying, hey, did you know that this word is cognate with this word? And they're like, I, okay, great. That's, you know, I, I happen to be a language nut. So, and, you know, that's great. I mean, I think I have a pretty broad audience just based on the feedback I get. And uh, I think it runs the gamut. Everybody from, you know, eight years old to 88 years old and beyond. And it always surprises me when parents tell me that their little kids listen to it as well. But that's kind of the way I aim the podcast. You know, I try to, I don't assume any basic level of knowledge. I try not to use any big words. And so, you know, I hopefully anybody that has a general interest in language or history should be able to tune in and pick it up and, and not feel like it's over their heads. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. You know, and uh, the the way that you present it 
is it's educational, but it has that has it has a lot of history there. And I happen to be a nut about language and somewhat of a, a nut about history, uh, but language in particular. And th- I think the thing that's always gripped me about language, other than it is it's, you know, anyone who speaks a certain language, it's common to everything. So if I were doing a podcast on the medical field or, as you know, the legal field, we could still be talking about English. Right. You know, and that and that's wonderful. Well, that's that's kind of the idea behind the podcast is language is something that everybody, of course, everybody uses it. I think most people have an interest in it. The tricky part, though, in doing a podcast about the history of a language is how do you make it interesting? Because the the title alone will prevent some people from ever listening to it because it sounds boring and it can be very boring. So the idea that I had when I began the podcast is trying, trying to figure out how to make it interesting. And the way that I did it is combining it with history. So you basically are telling a story and you're linking the developments in the language to historical developments and I think that makes it interesting because it's uh, there's always like a little bit of a cliffhanger or something's getting ready to happen or, you know, this event. And you know, it gives a, a way, I think, for the audience to kind of buy in and be able to listen episode after episode rather than just, you know, if I was just talking about phonetics and sound shifts and grammar. Yeah. You know, no one would really be interested in that. A very small audience. But, yeah, that's the idea balancing the history and the language. Yeah, and you, there is kind of a cliffhanger sense to it. I, I've been uh, since I was a kid. I've been a huge fan of um, evolution as a concept, and language being kind of a living thing. You, you see that evolution from Proto Indo European and all throughout the ages, you know. And and I don't know much about it at all. And, and a lot of what I hear, I tend to forget as we were mentioning before, uh, you know, we hit record, but there are little markers that I know, like the Norman conquest. So, Oh, when did, you know, old English become middle English or, you know, what, what, Oh, I'm a big fan of the Shakespearean period, you know, Elizabethan and all of that. And to know that, Oh, maybe in a couple episodes, it's going to get to that is Mm -hmm. that's kind of, you know, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. You have those major landmark events and you mentioned the, you know, the Norman Conquest is the big event because that's really what transitions English into what what they call Old English today, which is the language of Beowulf and the original language of Beowulf. And chances are, if you ever read Beowulf, you read a modern English translation because the original language is so foreign. I mean, it truly looks and sounds like a foreign language. And it's really that the Norman Conquest that that brings it into the the beginning of the modern era. Of course, it's called Middle English, but you get the heavy French influence. The grammar starts to come around. And what's interesting, I think, with the podcast is you're kind of able to tie it to those major events because it's such a seminal event in in English and sort of Anglo-American history. It shapes everything, not just the language, but the culture, the the society. Uh, But also, I try to do the readings at, the, you know, at certain periods in history as well. So during the Old English period, I would read Old English. And then as you transition into the Middle English period, you know, I, I tried to do, do those readings as well. And what you start to do is you start to hear the language evolve into the language we have today. And again, I think it's, it's those types of things that I try to do to, to bring the listener into the story. 
and, and make it familiar. And every episode, I try not to just focus on things that happened four or five, 600 years ago, but I try to bring examples that affect how we speak today. So whether it's the etymology of certain words, or maybe it's a grammatical development that explains why we, you know, say one thing and not something else, you know, I try to, to make it relevant so that you can, people can understand this may have happened 600 years ago, but it affects the way I speak every day today. And it just gives a personal connection to the story that I don't think you necessarily get with some you know, general histories. If I'm just talking about the political or social history of a place, you might not have that kind of personal connection to it. But when you tie it into language and it, you explain how it, this obscure event affected the way you speak today, it just gives that personal connection. Yeah, and and you do have these elements that could appeal to various different people. You have the historical element, the etymological element. And for me, you know, there's a bunch of that. But one thing in particular is you know, being a musician and being a, a voiceover uh, actor, the human voice is very kind of, you know, fascinating to me. So to hear you speak these old versions of languages is it, it I mean, it's musical in a certain way. And I'm I'm always amazed that you can it, you it sounds like you would imagine that it would have sounded then. And that's something that that I learned along the way as, as well. And I, I make a, a point of this early on in the podcast that I'm not a professional historian or linguist. I mean, I was exposed to some of this in college, but you know, as, as you noted earlier, I'm really an attorney. So my interest in, in the intersection of, of language and history really comes as an attorney using the language every day and trying to figure out the best words to use. And do I use a simple, basic old English word or do I use a sophisticated Latin or French word? So I was familiar with a lot of this. And, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think to, to get to the bigger point that the rhythm of the language is, is tied into the history as well. And what you learn, I think, and what I learned is when you, when you look at old English, the original version of English, it was a very different language, like I mentioned, but it had a different rhythm to it. You know, today, of course, outside of chronicles and some religious texts, most of what was composed in old English was poetry. And that's true in most old languages. And Poetry in Old English was very different than poetry today. Today, we tend to write poetry that rhymes, but that didn't really happen until the French came along after the Norman Conquest. In Old English, poetry was based on alliteration. You repeated the sounds at the beginning of, beginnings of the words, and there was a certain pattern, this very sophisticated pattern, where each line was divided into two half lines. And the sound that begins at the you know the first half line has to match the sound at the beginning of the second half line, and it's all very sophisticated and difficult, but the, but it creates a rhythm, and this is really how not just English but how ancient languages worked when people you know entertained other people when they told stories they did it through poetry, and whether you're repeating the sounds at the end of a word like poetry and songs work today or whether you're repeating the sounds at the beginning of the word, like, you know, Old English, it's, it's a mnemonic device. It kind of helps you remember what's coming next, and it also creates a rhythm and a pattern. And, of course, Old English poetry, just like Greek poetry and Latin poetry, was often performed with musical accompaniment. So a, a lyre in the background, and maybe it didn't have a specific melody necessarily, but there was, it was more, it was somewhere in between poetry and music. 
And so when you think about the Iliad and the Odyssey in, in the ancient Greek text, you know, those would have been performed the same way, maybe over the course of several days because they're so long, but they would have had often a musical accompaniment to it. And Old English would have been the same way. Uh, but again, you have that kind of Old English rhythm of, of repeating the sounds at the beginning, you know, different from iambic pentameter or some other, you know, modern rhyming verse. But what's interesting is trying to trace the history of, of song in English, because mm. one of the, the earliest, in fact, the earliest poem we have in English is called Cadman's Hymn. And it goes all the way back to probably around, well, the, the Bede, the venerable Bede was an Anglo-Saxon writer and chronicler. Yeah. And he told the story. Now he wrote in Latin, but he told the story of Cadman, who was illiterate, but he composed this beautiful old English poetry that he sang. And uh, he seemed to have divine inspiration. And so he wrote out the poem and it was later translated into old English by contemporaries, but it is the oldest poem we have in English and it's a hymn and it would have been sung at the time. Of course, we don't have any musical notation. So it ends yeah. up just being a poem. And this is true throughout the old English period. It's really not until we get into the early middle English period that we start to find musical notation. It's not the modern musical notation, it's an older form, but yeah. for the first time we can kind of get a sense of what the melodies would have sounded like. And that comes around really in probably the, the mid 1200s or so, we get some of the earliest English songs. So, and so when would the Cadman's hymn have been? Well, Bede is writing, I think, in the maybe the 700s, uh, late 700s, 800s. I don't remember the specific dates, but yeah. yeah. So really in the middle of the Old English period. And he's telling this story, so we don't know exactly when, but sometime in the early Old English period. Uh, so very, you know, very... The language of that is, again, much like Beowulf, is very foreign to, to a modern reader. You probably would not recognize it as being you know, English, but it is English, and it's, it's the earliest form. But then again, by the time you get into Middle English, you know, after the Norman Conquest, we get songs that are a little bit more familiar to us. And again, we do have musical notation, which I should note also kind of goes back to the Greeks. It really all begins with the Greeks. In fact, the word music is a Greek word. It comes from the muses because there was this idea that poets were inspired by the muses uh, and they were kind of the goddesses of poetry and, and music. That's where we get the word music from. And of course, a lot of the terms we use for music come from ancient Greek. So you have melody, harmony, chord, symphony, you know, um, anthem you know, and music and you know so many just basic because the music was important to the Greeks and the Greeks even had a very ancient way of notating music uh, whereby they would put letters of the Greek alphabet above the, the words alpha beta gamma and each of those letters represented a certain tone or sound and that is believed to be the ultimate origin of where we get our modern idea of using letters for musical notation so you know wow. a b c d e f g or you know very sharps and flats based on that so again it all really goes back to the greeks but in english we really have to wait until the middle late middle ages before we can kind of get complete songs where we have lyrics and musical notation 
And I mean, I'm pulling out a lot of stuff that I, I learned in college again, most of which I forget, but I, I know Pythagoras was, was big in kind of the development of musical notes and, and, and how that's based on, you know, harmonics and all of that. And that I think, I think I learned this from you that the word music was originally an adjective. It was music. Like the, there was as, as of the muses or something like that. And probably, yeah. I mean, again, I, mm-hmm. as I mentioned before we began, some of the, the research I do, some of these episodes I did years ago. So it's sometimes <laughs> tough for me to remember the details of every word, but right, yeah, that's very, right. very true. The other interesting thing about that word is uh, it's also where we get the word museum because they mm-hmm. would build temples to honor the muses and that uh-huh. kind of evolves into a museum. So yeah, a lot of these words are, it's the fascinating connections between words when you realize how they're, you know, the, the etymology and the history behind them. And, I, and I'll say this, that uh, some of what I do, and very, very little of it, but some of what I do in music is not a genre, has to do with the idea of how if you just take one step to the left to the right, you see how different forms of music connect. Mm-hmm. And the same is so mm-hmm. true with language, uh, wh- whether it's whole languages or just individual words. There's so much connection. And it, for the podcast that I do, it's called The History of English. But I did something a little bit unique in that most histories of English will begin with Old English, with the Anglo-Saxon period. I chose to go back way beyond that. And I began the story with as far back as as we can really go. And that's uh, an ancient language called the Proto-Indo-European language. It's probably spoken about 5,000 years ago. But the reason I did that is because that ancient language is not only the ultimate ancestor of English, it's also the ultimate ancestor of Greek and Latin and the Celtic languages. In fact, almost all of the languages of Europe are descended from that language, as well as languages of South Asia, a lot of the languages of Northern India, for example. So that's why it's called the Indo-European language. But the reason I did that is by doing that, it starts to help people make the connection between English and Latin and the Romance languages. So if you speak French or Spanish or Italian, and you recognize words that seem familiar. Well, sometimes it's because we borrowed a version of that word into English, but sometimes it's because English has its own version of that word because of that, those ultimate connections, you know, in the language. And I, I give a lot of examples of that early on in the podcast. So I won't go through all that here, but it's really fascinating when you can see how English is connected to French or Spanish. Of course, it's connected to German because it's a Germanic language. And that's the beauty of English is we have, we, we borrow so heavily from other languages. And so you start to, to see these connections. And once you account for a few basic sound changes, you can actually you know, recognize those connections very easily when you, when you see other languages. Yeah, I think it helps, you know, it helps to understand other languages, you know, even if you can't speak Spanish or Italian or French, you're starting to get an idea of, oh, I kind of see what they're saying. You know, I, I'm watching or we were watching a show uh, called Welcome to Wrexham, which is about a Welsh soccer team and uh, two uh, uh, TV star and Ryan Reynolds buy a Welsh soccer team, try to bring it up from the bottom. And one of the stars took some time to learn a little Welsh 
And is that is that a Celtic language? It is. Yeah. And and just to see it written even is a is bizarre. And then to hear it, it, it sounds like something that existed way back, you know. Well, it's again the Celtic languages, including Welsh, you know, Gaelic, Scots Gaelic, uh, and you have Cornish was once spoken, was related language in the southwestern corner of England. It's disappeared now. It's gone extinct. Uh, and then even Breton uh, spoken in, in northwestern France in Brittany is also a related language. Those are the, the kind of remaining surviving Celtic languages, but those were once the dominant languages throughout Britain and the British Isles. And uh, interestingly, English has very little Celtic influence in it. Now, again, they are ultimately related through common ancient Indo-European origins, but uh, English borrowed very little from the Celtic languages. Uh, and that's a, something that kind of surprises historical linguists as they look at it, because you would think there would be more as the, as the Germanic speaking Angles and Saxons and Jutes invaded England, Right. After the fall of the Roman Empire, there was a lot of, of you know, interaction. And again, you, normally that would be an environment where you would pick up a lot of words. But it appears that the the most of the Celtic speaking Britons were kind of defeated and, and pushed to the fringes of the British Isles, which is why the Celtic languages today are restricted to those areas like Wales and you know, Northern Scotland and, and Ireland. But for the most part, uh, I guess I said, very, very little Celtic influence on English. Yeah, that is surprising considering they lived so close to each other. But I guess that's part of what, what uh, to me, why you would tie so much of history in to, you know, talking about the language because certain events really had a huge impact on how the language developed, uh, in particular, something like a conquest where, there was a there was a firm decision. We're going to start speaking in this way or writing in this way. Right, and I always say English is is a time capsule, and that's a lot of people are, are frustrated with English because it doesn't seem logical or consistent. But sometimes our spellings reflect the time at which we borrowed a word and how that word was pronounced at the time. So we have you know this this wonderful kind of historical legacy tied into the language. Oh, and that just brings up a, a funny thing, which is quite often, probably too often, when we're uh, preparing dinner or I'm doing the dishes, I'll, I'll often say like, oh, can you hand me that kanifa? Or we'll say, yeah, because yeah. it fascinated me to learn that, yes, that was once a pronounced letter on the word knife. Yeah. Um, I mean, you think about a word like night, like a knight in shining armor. There's six letters in that word, K-N-I-G-H-T. We only pronounce three of them, the N, the I, and the T, right? right? The K, but it would have been pronounced knicht at one time. Uh -huh. So you would have had a K sound at the front. That G-H in the middle is a kind of that guttural sound that English has lost over time. And it's why we have G-H in so many words today. Uh, but it, it's never really pronounced because it was a sound that existed. But our spelling kind of got fixed before those sounds completely disappeared. And so, and this happened a lot with vowels too. This is another fascinating topic, but a little bit complicated because all of the, the long vowel sounds in English shifted around. And it happened all the kind of around the same time, the same time as the K sound was disappearing and the GH sound was disappearing. 
So what you ended up with today is spelling that seems like a bit of a mess because it doesn't always match the way the words are pronounced today, mm-hmm. but it does match the way the words were once pronounced. Yeah, and and I think, again, like he's sort of tying this to music, or at least how the human voice sounds. It seems to me like a lot of the development of how words are pronounced had to do with fluidity and ease of speaking. Oh, well, this is an extraneous sound all of a sudden, and it makes it harder to say. So let's not do that. And uh, and then you you I think this was you again. You gave a kind of a modern example of how language can change in that way with the phrase, uh, I am going to, that has been shortened to I'm gonna, and then I'm a, you know, and, and that can one, you know, at some point end up in the lexicon or in a book that that's an official, you know, word or phrase. Yeah. That happens all the time. And, and it's just a natural human tendency to look for easier ways to pronounce things. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, from the South. So we say y'all, you know, instead of you all, you know, uh, one of my favorite examples of this, and I don't think I've ever mentioned it in the podcast is, uh, the word something, which some people reduce that second syllable to basically a grunt. It's not even a word. It's something, something mm, Mm -hmm. is the second syllable, um, something, and so I don't know how you would spell that. There's, there's no T-H-I-N-G anywhere in there. Yeah. But it's just a, it's just a, it's just, we're going to take this two syllable word and just grind it right down to just a grunt. And, and that happens. That's just a, a natural tendency that sometimes happens in language. That's yeah, that's pretty great. I think I've actually, I've seen different spellings of that, but I, the one I've seen the most is S-U-M-P-N, you know, and there might be an apostrophe <laughs> or, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and some of that comes from the, when I'm trying to learn lyrics for a song or understand what somebody is saying, cause it's not always easy to understand. And, uh, um, or someone's speaking very quickly. I did a podcast episode on Eminem and talked about the poetry within his lyrics and how complex, you know, his lyrics are and alliterative, even when they're not rhyming, you know, that's using the same sound over and over in ways that are, that just blow your mind when you're listening to that. But a lot of that is, I, I don't quite understand what the person is saying or singing right. and can often get that wrong. And I know there's a term for getting that wrong. Yeah. It's called a mondegreen. Uh, it's just basically a fancy term for a misheard lyric. It comes from a song that uh, I, I think it, the original version of the song, I don't know the exact name. It's like the Bonnie Earl of Moray, but it's a Scottish folk song that was composed in the 1600s at some point because it references the death of uh, a, an Earl, Bonnie Earl of Moray. Um, he was killed in the late 1500s, so Elizabethan period, but folk song appears. And at some point in the 1900s, uh, some uh, a writer, and I don't, again, don't remember all the details now, but uh, she wrote about mishearing the lyric because there's a line that says, they killed the Earl of Moray and laid him on the green. I think that's the line. The Earl of Moray and laid him on the green. And she wrote that she misheard it as killed the Earl of Moray and Lady Mondegreen. So <laughs> killed him and his wife, it sounded yeah. like to her. Anyway, that's where the term comes from as a, a word for a misheard lyric. And I did a, a bonus episode because I do have a separate you know, 
Patreon site where I do bonus episodes. And I went through a lot of those. And there, I mean, anybody can mishear a song lyric, but some of them are just classic examples. And you have the, I mean, just a few examples. You have, you know, the famous Jimi Hendrix line, excuse me while I kiss the sky, which is often misheard as, excuse me while I kiss this guy. And this other guy. Uh, and then there's a, a great one. Uh, John Fogarty with CCR had Bad Moon Rising. And uh, he, he says there's a, a bad moon on the rise, which people heard as there's a bathroom on the right. And that became so common that he when he actually performs that song today, he sings that he sings that in in like the first time through he'll sing there's a bad moon on the rise and the second time through he'll sing you know there's a bathroom on the right and kind of laugh or smile when he does it um so yeah some of these just get picked up in in popular culture over time that's Um, cool i love uh even it doesn't have to be pop music you know london bridge is falling down becomes london britches like pants london britches falling down uh yeah i mean there's just a ton of those out there yeah, you know, the first one, this is probably not the first I ever heard, but the one that I can recall being made aware of, I was in uh, probably sixth grade or something like that. And a good friend of mine who's heavily into uh, heavy metal music would come into the locker room singing Dirty Jeans and Dungarees. <laughs> and it's an ACDC yeah. song, Dirty Deeds on Dirt Chief. Yeah, yeah. And that's the first one I remember. Yeah. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind becomes the ants are my friends. So <laughs> the little ants are my friends. Yeah, okay, it's just, there's a ton. Of, it's a fun topic. And in, in that episode, I actually went back and pulled the, the clips and incorporated them into the episode. And some of them are, I mean, I some of them are obvious. I mean, the sky and this guy, it's just where you put the S, you know, and that where you break the syllable yeah. up. So it's very easy to mishear that. But some of them are a little weird because you, you know, people think they hear something and you listen to the lyric and it's like, I don't know how you got there. But yeah, it's like when people used to play the records backwards and claim they heard all kinds of messages. And yep, it's like, yep. listen to that. And you, I don't hear anything but just, you know, garbled language. But yeah, that's. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, and there's a, a the one more I, I recall that actually uh, ended up in a song was uh, this Pearl Jam song, and it was it's called Jeremy. Mm-hmm. And so the first time I heard it, hadn't seen the video, hadn't seen the lyrics, listening to it on the radio, could not understand. There's, there's quite a few of the early Eddie Vedder songs. I'm not sure what he's saying. Like Yellow Ledbetter is just complete. Mm-hmm. Sounds like gibberish to me, but it's actual lyrics. And the chorus of Jeremy, I thought for some reason he was singing clearly spoken, clearly said. Which I then took, and when I realized and learned that he was singing Jeremy Spoke in class today, I was like, well, hell, I'm going to use that phrase myself. And I wrote a song based on that phrase. But, you know, you never know where things are going to go. I wonder how often people actually pull up the lyrics and listen to songs, uh, because it's always fascinating to me. And I have to admit, I'm more, even though I do a podcast about language, I'm, I'm more of a melody person. You know, I don't really focus on the lyrics. You know, I just want the, I want the, I want a nice melody. I want the lyrics to kind of match the melody and have a certain feel and rhythm. So I don't really focus that much on the, the meaning of the lyrics, but sometimes I will be curious what I'm listening to and pull up the lyrics. And it's always fascinating to see the difference between what you think 
they're saying and what they're really saying. Um, but yeah, that, that's a fun topic. It's one of the, it's one of the great examples of, of where music and language intersects. And there's a lot you can do with that. I love that. And for anybody out there, it's absolutely worth it to join Kevin's Patreon site because these bonus episodes are gems, you know, and this is one of them I think you really enjoy. I, you know, when, it's so much easier to find lyrics these days. And, you know, you used to have to really listen very carefully if you were trying to perform a song and, and learn what it was, unless there were liner notes that included all the lyrics, which I was just... I would be the person who would very uh, unadvisedly be listening to music in the car and have the CD case open on the seat just in case there was a lyric I didn't understand, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. because if I knew I really wanted to know more about that song and I'll tell you the, the there's, I'm in a couple cover bands as well. And I've had to learn some songs that I've heard my whole life and I'm still surprised often at lyrics I thought were one thing and were, were another. Yeah. You know? And one thing, speaking of the, the Patreon episodes, I also did a, a bonus episode where I looked at lyrics uh, of songs and words that were made up words, basically words that only appear in song uh, and tried to determine if there were any words that were coined in a song and have actually passed into general use because people hear the song, it passes into popular culture. And there are a few of these. Um, I traced out the history of uh, the word pompatus in the Steve Miller song. Yeah. You know, he, he sings about the pompatus of love, right. which is, it was itself a misheard lyric. Um, he had it was a doo-wop song and he misheard a word there that was also probably a made up word. And anyway, uh, but even though we kind of know that word from the song, it's not really passed into general use. So I tried to think of some that had, and I specifically was looking for words that are actually found in dictionaries today, like the, the Oxford English dictionary. And there are a few of those, you know, I think one of the, the great examples in recent history is the word, and this is arguable, it's the word stand for a fan, basically a portmanteau of stalker and fan. Mm -hmm. So if someone is a, a you know, really big fan of a celebrity and stalks them, of course, it comes from the Eminem song, Stan, which right. is about a stalker who's a fan. Right. Uh, the, the tricky part with that one, though, is everybody assumes it's a portmanteau of stalker and fan. But I don't think there's ever been an interview where Eminem has actually said that's the case. His the character in the song is named Stan, the stalker. Right. right. So as far as we know, it could just be the name of the character. It, it isn't entirely clear that it was a new word that he coined, even though it's kind of been treated that way. Uh, there are a few others. There was, uh, believe it or not, the word bootylicious um, has actually <laughs> been picked up. I think is in the Oxford English Dictionary yeah. today. Nice. Um, Hollaback girl. I think as, as also, I think Pharrell Williams actually coined that. He was working with uh, okay. Glenn Stefani at the time and they wrote the song together. But one of the best examples of a, a word that was made up in a song and has passed into popular usage over time, and this actually surprises and shocks a lot of people, is the word mullet. And mullet specifically in reference to a haircut. Uh, mullet had been around for a type of fish for many centuries, but the first time it was applied to a haircut was by the Beastie Boys in their song Mullet Head. And it's, it's a song specifically about that style of haircut. And in the song, they specifically reference Billy Ray Cyrus and Joey Buttafuoco, who were kind of famous for that hairstyle at the time. And, and <laughs> talk about it. 
And at least according to the experts, uh, the Oxford English Dictionary and other people who have researched it, it's the first time that the word mullet was used in reference to that particular hairstyle. Wow. And it just, even though that song wasn't all that popular, it somehow just got picked up in popular culture. And today, it seems like it's a word that's been around for a long time, but it's only been around for you know, a few decades. Yeah, so here's a perfect example of something that... I don't understand why when I heard you say this, I haven't just told everybody, you know, because I forgot that's where mullet came from. And I'm a huge Beastie Boys fan. And to think that they've entered a word into the English language is just I, I love that. There's a, a another podcast I was listening to recently. I um, I listened to Never Not Funny, which is a, a podcast uh Jimmy Pardo is a comedian and he's, he's one of the, actually one of the first podcasters really. And uh, they were recently debating this very topic because someone had read that it was coined by the Beastie Boys and no one could believe it. And they actually went out and, and tried to research it and figure it out. And it's true. That's, that's the first uh, recorded citation of the word, but it, it doesn't wow. happen very often, but it is fascinating how a word that's sort of made up, but that just shows you the impact of music and lyrics and once it kind of passes into the popular culture, you know, people just pick it up. And there are lots of, in that particular episode, I mentioned a lot of made up lyrics and songs. Um, I don't remember very many of them off the top of my head, but most of them, of course, don't really pass into popular culture. But every once in a while, one sneaks through. And I would imagine, and I guess mullet is an example of this because it was the name of a fish, that not only have some words been coined in songs that have entered general use, but I'm sure there were plenty or have been plenty of words that have existed forever that were used in a certain way in a lyric that took on a new meaning that then passed into the language. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that's true too. There was another episode that I did that I found one of my personal favorite episodes to put together. Again, this was a bonus episode. Looked specifically at the Beatles and their particular use of the the Scouse or the Liverpool accent, uh, because it's such a, a d distinct accent, and, and even within Britain, it's a very distinct accent. And I tried to go back and listen to some of their songs and try to pick out, you know, evidence of, of that particular accent in the song. And it was very fascinating to do that. Uh, but yeah, there are some unique features that pop up. One of the things that's really interesting in, in doing that episode, uh, of course, most British accents are what we call non-rhotic today. So they, they don't tend to pronounce the R sound after a vowel. Yeah. So whereas, you know, we might say birth in American English, they might say birth in Britain, you know, but they don't really pronounce that R. And what was fascinating is listening to the Beatles, and I, this, by the way, isn't just based on my research. There are other researchers who looked at this. Sure. In their first few albums, say up through 1966, they tend to pronounce their R's in songs because they were mimicking or imitating American musicians. Oh, they were heavily God. influenced by American early you know, rock and roll. And they kind of affect a little bit of an American accent sometimes. And, you, and the percentages are really high. But then once you get into around the time they're doing, you know, Revolver 
uh, Rubber Soul, and you certainly get into some of their more experimental works where they're now kind of taking on their, their own personalities, their own identities, doing their own thing. Now they start to speak more in their natural and sing in their natural accents. And so the percentage of songs where they're pronouncing those R's and kind of the American style gets dropped. And they're, wow. they're now much heavily, the, the later songs they did or you know, non-rotic, much more so than the early songs. Uh, and there's a, a great example, I think when Paul says um, in an interview, he sings, you know, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And his dad heard the song and said, I like the song, but I, I don't like, you know, using the American word, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you say yes, 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 you know, like a proper right. English thing. But <laughs> that just, they were so influenced by American music early on. They affected a lot of those kind of American pronunciations in there. And it's really fascinating to trace that, how they evolved. You know, people focus on their musical development. They don't really tend to focus on their linguistic development and how they used and pronounced words in their lyrics, but they actually did change over time as they became a bigger band and, and people looked to them. They started imitating them rather than the, you know, them imitating someone else. Yeah, you're and you're right. I, I know their music very well. One of the cover bands I most frequently perform in is a Beatles cover band. And I'm sure if I heard it, I would say, oh, yeah, I know what you mean, but it's not something that I paid attention to before this, you know. Now, it, and is it true? I, I think in one of your episodes, you mentioned that the like non-rhotic English is not all that old, right? They're like, I remember that in Shakespearean times, we think of Shakespeare, you know, but that it was not really pronounced that way. Correct. Yeah. Believe it or not, at least in that regard, Shakespeare would have sounded more like most Americans do today than most people in England. Yet when you see Shakespeare performed on stage and you have these great Shakespearean actors, they use a very modern British pronunciation, what they call received pronunciation, kind of the standard, you know, Southern English pronunciation. But uh, that wasn't the case in Shakespeare's time. Uh, It's complicated because there would have been places in England where the R was not pronounced, mainly in kind of the South, Eastern, Eastern counties, you know, that part of England. But in London, and most of the rest of England, the R was pronounced. And we actually have, you know, People, once we get into the Elizabethan and Shakespearean periods, people are writing about English and people are writing about the way English is pronounced. And of course, as you can imagine, some people are very particular about it. They say, well, people are pronouncing these words wrong and you know, these, this is how they should be pronounced. And so mm-hmm. we know from, from the way people were writing that they were critical of people who didn't pronounce the R. Also, the writing was more phonetic then. So we find in those Eastern counties, words like Um, The word parcel for parcels of land that comes up in deeds and wills and all kinds of documents are often written P-A-S-S-E-L, parcel. So you can pick it up from the spellings as well. But what happens over time is that non-rhotic pronunciation spread. It spread northward and westward gradually overtaking uh, London and then spreading out through most of the rest of England. But that really didn't happen until the 1700s. And by that point, American English was already established. Now, American English itself is complicated because it has a mixture of rhotic and non-rhotic accents. But the rhotic variety was established well enough by that point in America that it eventually became the dominant version. But what's really interesting aspect of that 
is that American accents and dialects often reflect where they came from in England, because when people migrated from England to North America, they didn't always do it in a, in a haphazard or random manner. They often did it in organized ways. And it makes sense if you think about it. If you're from the West country of England and you're thinking about migrating to North America, and you know that you have other family members living in Virginia, Virginia colony, or friends or other people in your area, that's where you're gonna go too, right? And that's what happened. Much of the settlement around the early Virginia colony came from the West country of England. And some of the features of still today, Southern accents have some of those features built within them. Well, think about in New England, uh, the early Massachusetts colony, Plymouth colony, most of those settlers came from that eastern part of England, that southeastern part of England, where I said that they weren't pronouncing their R's in the 1600s when that migration occurred. And think about the classic stereotypical Boston accent today, Pakika and Havid Yad. Yeah. It's non-rhotic. They're not pronouncing their R's. And modern linguists think that that's at least in part because the early settlers in that region came from that part of England that was where they didn't pronounce their R's. But that feature, again, spread out over time. So if you were to go back and listen to Shakespeare uh, performed in the original language, and by the way, there are acting companies that do that today. Oh. It's called original pronunciation. Uh, if you hear them uh, pronounce the words, it sounds, people who listen to it say it sounds like a blend of British English, American English, and Irish English. Mm. And, and as I say, that's exactly what it should sound like, because <laughs> that was the form of English that was spoken just before those three major dialects split, because you start right. to get heavy settlement in Ireland during the late Elizabethan and early Stuart period, 1600s, and you get the first major settlement in North America around that time. So if you go back just before the language split into those three major dialects, you should hear some combination of the three built within that. And that's exactly what you get when you reconstruct the language and go back and listen to Shakespeare or original pronunciation. So it's really fascinating. I, I love it. I, there are too many things swirling in my head. That's how fascinated I am with all of this. And I, I remember a couple things I guess I'll mention is I, I remember God, so long ago that Johnny Carson was still, uh, you know, hosting the tonight show and he had a guest on who was a linguist and was going over kind of regionalisms and you, and I forget the word, but let's just say it's park. And he said, here, are th here are three different words. And I think it might've been park, park and pork or something like that or something. And he said, you're actually saying the same word, but in, in different regional, you know, pronunciations. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was fun. It, there may be uh, one of the classic examples of that. There are lots of those, but the words Mary, Mary and Mary. So M-A-R-Y, the name, M-A-R-R-Y, like to marry someone and M-E-R-R-Y, like have a Merry Christmas. In my accent, and I think many Americans, I pronounce them basically the same way, but different accents. There are some accents that pronounce two of them the same way, but one of them different, differently. <laughs> and then in, in other accents, they're all three pronounced differently, distinct yeah. vowels. And so these, this has to do with vowel mergers. Another example that I encounter all the time uh, is what's called the pen-pin merger, which mm -hmm. is where the 
short E and short I sounds merge together. So in my accent, naturally, I would say P-E-N and P-I-N the same way, pin. When I'm in the podcast, and this actually came up in the last episode where I talked about the first recorded lead pencil in English, but I have to be very particular when I'm pronouncing it to say pen and pin. Uh, And it still may not come (laughs) out correctly because in my accent, there's no difference between those two vowel sounds. And this is true in other accents as well. Another one is called the caught-caught merger, which Mm -hmm. is where the word caught, C-A-U-G-H-T, is pronounced exactly the same way as cot, C-O-T. And in fact, this is true throughout much of the northern and western part of the United States and into Canada. Large portions of the English-speaking world today have combined those vowels. Whereas in where I'm from in, in the you know, U.S. South, they haven't really done that. So I would say, I'm a lawyer, so I would say law, aw. Someone from New York might say law. Um, law. Wow. Are you a lawyer? Mm-hmm. Lawyer? Lawyer. And it's very subtle, but but there is a difference there in that vowel. Yeah. And so when you hear these people who say, I can hear where you're, I can tell where you're from just if you say a couple of sentences, that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but that's kind of how they do it because you can pick up on a few basic words and the vowel sounds in those words, and you can really pinpoint exactly where someone is, is from, at least Maybe not down to the city, but at least within their general region. Well, I have a question about that. But one last word that in, in this, you know, as an example, when I was a kid or, or teens or early 20s, I remember noticing that in the South Jersey, Philadelphia accent, which is where I'm from, mm-hmm. if I, I'll say two different words, I'll try to get the accent right uh, now and now. And one is nail and one is now. And they sound exactly the same. Yeah. 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 It's very tricky. This is, it's to me, it's one of the most fascinating aspects of English. And it's something that I've tried to trace out. The great thing about a podcast is it gives you the opportunity to focus on sounds, phonetics, Mm -hmm. differences. You can't get that in in a book. There are lots of books about the history of English, but you can look at those phonetic transcriptions all day. And it's not going to make a bit of sense to you unless you have training in linguistics. The great thing about a podcast, though, is I can actually deal with these issues, and I try to do, I've touched on it a little bit, but it's a chronological podcast, as you mentioned, so just now up to the Shakespearean period, most of these modern accent differences evolved in modern English, so I haven't really delved into them, but I've touched on them a little bit, but one thing that I did is I set up a page on the website where I encouraged listeners to leave voice samples, which I have used a little bit, but I'm mainly going to to be using those in future episodes. And what I encouraged people to do was read a series of sentences that I included on that page. And those sentences are based on the very things we're talking about. There, you know, there's a sentence that uses the word caught and caught in the same (laughs) sentences. And, And these types of things to kind of pick up slight differences in accents. And I'm going to be using those more and more in future episodes. But yeah, that's to me, one of the most fascinating things is why, why do we speak the way we do? I got an email, I get emails all the time. I got an email yesterday from someone asking me about a word like street. Now I would say in my accent, streets, I say kind of a sh sound, street, yeah. sh sound, street, whereas most people would say street. 
I can't even really say that very yeah. well. Again, it's an accent difference. And, some, and I, I've gotten this quite a bit because my last name is Stroud, but I, I would say Stroud. But anyway, I get that, that question a, a lot. And uh, this particular person just wanted to know, where did it come from? How did it develop? Why, you know, why do you, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know where every little difference in pronunciation comes from. Some of them can be traced back to specific points in time, but some of them are just natural occurrences because we talked about earlier that tendency to kind of slur a little bit and cheat a little bit when we talk and find a new way of saying something uh, that happens all the time. You know, the, the one constant of language is change. It's yeah. always changing. Nothing stands still. And it's why you, you know, you shouldn't get too upset if someone speaks a little bit differently than you do because everybody speaks a little bit differently. And the language that we speak today is so different than it was a century, two centuries, four centuries back. It's just constantly changing. And uh, it's one of the, the great things about studying the history of language is, is trying to identify and, and pinpoint those changes. One great example, and I've mentioned this to my kids and who knows who else, to me is the word ask, mm-hmm. where you pointed out that some many episodes ago that the variation of that act is not a new variation. No. And a lot, and so many of us kind of, I'm not us, but there's so many people who associate that with, oh, that person isn't speaking correct English. Right, right. And it's, and it's, you know, related to certain groups of people or whatever. But when you learn the history of something and you get that kind of connect of thinking, well, like you said, don't judge somebody for how they're speaking differently. And you, and you realize that that's a variation that's been around forever, then it really opens your mind. And what you're really getting at is, is, people who say ax instead of ask. I asked yeah. him a question. And yeah. that was, now both pronunciations have been around since Old English, mm-hmm. but it does appear that in, in the late Old English, early modern English period, ax was the more common of the two pronunciations. It's a little wow. difficult to you know, really say that definitively, but we can say that it was definitely true. It's used, uh, I think, sh- Jeffrey Chaucer uses it. I mean, we know because spellings were phonetic back then. We didn't have standard spellings, so people wrote the way they were pronounced. But yeah, so it was a very standard spelling. This, again, happens a lot. One thing that's really interesting is the old English speakers apparently had a problem a little bit with the um, SK sound, sk. And so that may have been a factor in why ask became ax. They just mm. reverse those two sounds. It, in fact, when Old English, as I said, came out of an, an older language, which is called Proto-Germanic. It's the common language of English, German, Dutch, the Scandinavian languages. And that language had that sk, that sk sound. But one of the sound changes that happened very early on in Old English that distinguished English from other languages in the Germanic family was that that sound was softened from sk to sh. So Mm. it went from an SK sound to an SH sound. Uh. Now, this is really important because a few centuries later, England is invaded by Vikings who actually end up conquering about half of England. They called it the Dane law. And so they settled there and they brought their Norse language with them. Well, Norse is a Scandinavian language. It's, it's a Germanic language, very similar to old English. In fact, it was so similar. The Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons probably could communicate with each other at the time. But what happened is a lot of those Norse words started to be adopted into English. 
And so what we find if we look closely is we have a native English word with the SH sound, but we have a Norse or other Germanic word with the mm. SK sound. And my favorite example of this is shirt and skirt. <sighs> shirt is the Eng old English word. Skirt is just the Norse version of the same word. It's the word the Vikings brought. And it, for that to make a little more sense, you have to think about it in, uh, in the sense that clothing was very different at the time. It was more like a tunic, a long robe mm. that kind of draped over you. It was tied in the middle with a belt. Well, as so Anglo-Saxons called it a shirt, Vikings called it a skirt. Well, in later centuries, when those two garments became separate garments, you know, as fashions changed, the English word was applied to the top half. The Norse word was applied to the bottom half. Uh -huh. But we find this all the time. You know, you have a, a ship in English, but you might have a skiff or skipper. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, it comes from either Dutch or, or Norse. Uh, yeah. there, there are lots of these uh, in English. So, um, oh, but, but, but that's, that's the point we're talking about, you know, these basic little sound changes and it kind of takes us back around to that that idea of acts versus ask. Mm -hmm. uh, because, again, at one time, people just had a problem apparently saying sk. And yeah. so they just shifted it to a different sound. Yeah. And, and those pronunciations were common in the language. And they still linger. But, you know, maybe they get associated with one particular dialect. And anytime you have a, you know, a non-standard dialect, it becomes tends to become stigmatized. Yeah. So people see it as inferior and see it as wrong. And, and so then those pronunciations are deemed to be wrong, but that's what I hope the, the podcast helps to, you know, dispel some of those myths and, and get people to understand yes, that, that these, this isn't necessarily a case of laziness or ignorance. It's yeah. just simply the fact that we speak differently. Some of us use different pronunciations uh, you know, we, we don't make fun of British English because they're not pronouncing their R's. In fact, even many Americans revere British English. They consider it to be a very posh accent, you know, when yeah. someone speaks in that manner. Um, but yet it's a, it's a change that has developed within British English over time. You know, it's a modern pronunciation difference. But these, this, is, this is how language works. You know, it's, it's natural. I've got a couple questions to uh, bring this back around the music. This one kind of gets us halfway there, I'll say. And having to do with the, how language uh, can split into dialects and, and regionalisms. My question is this. I, it just popped into my head a few minutes ago. So in the development of music, you have, you know, you can trace back the origins of a certain kind of music further back than even the term for it existed. So, you know, rock and roll music we associate with the 50s, it actually sort of started more in the 40s, you know, uh, you know, Rocket 88 and songs like that. And then you have uh, rap music or hip hop, which we associate with the, you know, late 70s, 80s and all of that. But there were elements of it that existed in the 60s and even in certain cultures before, even way before that. And so you have these, Types of music, blues and country and, and you know, uh, things that that diverged into all these different genres. Right. And then in the 90s, you have two of these divergent genres that have all of a sudden reconverged into rap rock, Limp Bizkit and Kid Rock and things like that. 
are have there been in, in is is as parts of America maybe an example times where these dialects and regionalisms of people coming from different areas then converging into a certain area that then creates let's say the New York accent or the Philly accent yeah are you so question is do those modern accents reflect a blending or convergence of different accents together is that that, that want though yeah accents that once diverged then come and converge and create something new i think yeah i mean i think certainly that happens when you think about particularly within american english which as i noted earlier has so many different settlement patterns uh the, the fascinating thing about american english to me and i haven't gotten to that topic in the podcast yet because it's chronological we're not quite there yet yeah. but what's fascinating about American English, let's focus on that, is that the earliest reports we have about the way people spoke in, in North America is that it was there was very little difference in accent. So when people from, from England, from other parts of Britain traveled to the colonies, and they traveled around, they wrote their diaries and reports and went back home, one of the consistent themes was that People speak the same throughout the colonies. You know, there's not much difference. And that would surprise us a little bit today. But it sort of makes sense because if you're familiar with, with England itself, you'll know there's tremendous variation in dialects, almost from town to town. It's, it's incredibly different. Well, what was happening as they were migrating to, the United, to what became the United States, there was a little bit of a leveling off. People with different accents were merging together. So there was a, a roughing, you know, the edges were kind of being you know, rounded off a bit. Mm -hmm. And while there was some regional variation, which I alluded to earlier, it was pretty much uniform. But then over time, as we said, language changes. So you start to find as you get into the 1700s and certainly into the 1800s, there's significant regional variations starting to emerge. And we can clearly document that by the time we get to the late 1800s and early 1900s, when we have audio for the first time, some of the earliest recordings, we can clearly establish how different and regional it was. But then what's happened in the modern era is you've had um, the advent of a more standardized uh, media, um, television, mm -hmm. radio, movies, internet, so that now there seems to be kind of a move back into the opposite direction again, where there seems to be a move away from regional accents to a more standardized form of English. Mm. And um, so you do get this kind of back and forth, give and take. As far as the, you know, there actually being a, a blending of old accents into, into new accents, it does, I'm sure it happens. I'm sure it can be documented. It's, it's very tricky to trace. Um, I think we went back to that idea of rhoticism, I think is a good example of that. If you think about, I said that the New England accent, that Pakika and Havadyad is non-rhotic. Well, there were also places, you know, in many parts of New York City, as very famous, had non-rhotic accents as well, where they didn't pronounce the R's, was once much more yeah. common, uh, I think has, has started to decline a little bit as well. Uh, yeah. And then in parts of the South, you had, you know, those old kind of, that famous Southern accent that's also non-rhotic, you know, yeah. um, my father and mother and just, but, but those have started to decline as well. So I think what you've seen there is a, kind of an example of that, where there was a little bit more regional variation. But what you're, what's really happening is a, a more standard variety is being established. 
and then it's sort of merging over. I, I, maybe not the, the most clearly thought out answer to your question, but I'll try to give you one good example of this, I think. Yeah. Um, in English, we don't really have a way to distinguish second person singular and plural. So I'm talking to you right now, individual. I'm, I'm referring to you as you, but it, I might refer to a large audience as you as well. You know, we don't, we, we lost that distinction. We used to have it in Shakespearean times. I would say thou and you, um, we, we, oh. you was the plural version. Thou was the singular oh. version okay. uh, or the, uh, but at any rate, we lost that distinction in English and English has been trying to figure out a way to deal with that ever since. And there are so many different ways. Some people say Ewans and in parts of, you know, around Pittsburgh, they say Yens. And uh, of course in England, they might say you lot. Uh, but in American English, you tend to get you guys very common in the North. Yeah. Y'all very common in the South. Yeah. And what's happened over time is you guys has spread South. So you'll find very many people in the South today say you guys. But what I've also noticed is y'all is spreading to the North as oh, well. Yeah. And you'll hear it now, partly it comes through migration patterns, um, African-American English, or sometimes called uh, African-American vernacular English or black vernacular English, whatever fancy mm -hmm. term you want to use for it. Mm -hmm. But it is basically a branch or dialect of Southern American English and with the migration of so many African-Americans out of the South into parts of the North and upper Midwest, they carried a lot of those pronunciations with them and they carried y'all with them as well. Mm. And of course, it's very common today. We talk about music. How often do you hear y'all used in especially, you know, hip hop, R&B, soul music, very common. And what's happened is that very distinctive Southern term can now be heard around the country. And what always fascinates me is I sometimes hear even people in England today, if I'm listening to something in British English, I'll hear someone use y'all. And it always strikes me a little bit, but it, it, it's not common, but it does happen. But it's another example of these different regional dialects overlapping, merging, blending, at times replacing other pronouns or, you know, down variations that are in place. Yeah. And I think that's part of that process you're referring to, where there, there aren't any neat geographical boundaries anymore. These, right. these things right. are blending together. And it's funny because linguists have tried to, there's a branch of linguistics that actually tries to predict where the language is going. So mm. rather than looking backwards, it's looking forward and trying ah. to guess. And one thing that modern, a lot of those linguists believe is that English is going to resolve this problem and have a singular and plural you in the future. Right. And they think that it will be a version of you all, the plural <laughs> version. Uh, it might be you all, maybe not y'all, but what's been proposed is y'all, Y-U-L. Okay. And if we were around, if we could jump forward another couple of centuries, excuse me, another couple of centuries, you might be hearing people say y'all and for the plural you. That's been what, you know, just looking at patterns and historical patterns. But yeah, it, this is, this is a good example though of how these different regional dialects influence each other, separate and merge back together. That, yeah. And it brings up, uh, just to quickly touch on it, the, the you know, uh, 
so much is going on in culture with gender identity and trying to find that singular that's non-binary. And then we've settled on they, but there may be some other, something else that might work even better. And yeah. others have been proposed. Z was proposed at one time, but it's very hmm. difficult to make up a new pronoun. Um, it's much <laughs> yeah. easier to take an existing pronoun and just apply it in a different way. I mentioned purpose, you yeah. was you was once the plural pronoun. Now yeah. we use it for singular. Yeah. They has all, well, since the time of Jeffrey Chaucer, they has been used for singular, you know, uses uh, when people, because we don't oh. really have a good gender neutral term. So we say, uh, you know, the, the, the postman came by earlier and they left me a, a package on the front doorstep. Oh yeah. We've, that's been around since, you know, the 1300s because we don't really know if it was a he or a she. We we don't want to say it, you know, it left the package. That seems kind of offensive. So we say they, and we do that all the time in normal speech. Don't really think about it, but that's the singular they. And now we've talked about it just being adopted as a more general pronoun form. This is the way pronouns work. In fact, pronoun, the history of pronouns in and of itself is fascinating because we've had, you would think pronouns would be pretty stable and they actually haven't been very stable at all. A lot of people don't realize that words like they, them, and their, three of our most common pronouns came from the Vikings. Those were yeah. Norse pronouns. Uh, the English versions were more like hey, ham, and her. They had an H sound at the uh-huh. beginning. In fact, a lot of the old English pronouns began with that H sound, which we still have in words like he and him and her, but the female version was heyo, and it got Mm. really confusing. And so sometime around early Middle English, English picked up the word sheo, which became Uh she. Yeah. So she is not native to English. They is not native to English. Them is not native to English. There is not native to English. You was once a plural pronoun, is now a singular pronoun. Yeah. A is sometimes yeah. applied in singular version. So when people get upset about pronouns, it's like, dude, if you looked at the history of English, there's a whole history of this happening going yes. on. And it constantly right. changes. Damn right. We only have a few minutes here. And there are a couple of things uh, I had noted down that I can't imagine any other guest I will have, uh, you know, give me an opportunity to say these things. When I was studying music in school, we went through the history of music pretty, pretty thoroughly. And the one song I remember is a song that you've mentioned before. Summer is it coming in? Right. Yeah. Summer is coming in. Yeah. And I just, I think that's one of the, and this was, I guess I was a teen. So it was one of the songs and things in life in general that, kind of caught me onto wanting to understand more about the development of the English language, because I could understand most of it, not all of it, but enough to know like, wow, summer songs have been around for hundreds of years. Yeah. You know, it is. Uh, we talked at the very beginning of, of our discussion about the earliest songs in English. And that's one of the earliest ones. I think it dates yeah. back to around the 1200s or 1300s. In fact, okay. I actually could pull it up and I don't know if you would want me to, but I could, try to read it in the uh, in the original Middle English, just to kind of give listeners a, an idea of the difference between Middle English and Modern English. I don't uh, think we have time. time. I would love okay. to, love okay. to. But yeah, maybe we'll just note it down uh, underneath. One more thing, which is 
just a funny thing. I've been listening to your podcast for eight years. You know, I've heard every episode. I recall a few years ago, not very long ago, you have this. So you have this uh, theme song, which mm-hmm. is I have. Oh, um, Medieval Fair, Sean Piggott. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I noticed at a certain point for the first several years of your podcast, the fade out of that song had a little glitch in it. It would it had a little hiccup. And when I was listening to it, I listened to 60 episodes in a row when I first listened and I got attached to that. And I was like, oh, that's I know that was not meant to be there, but it kind of is like a nice, like warm little thing. And at a certain point, I don't know if somebody pointed it out or who does your editing that disappeared. It got fixed. Are you talking about at the very end of the episode? Yes. Yes. It's funny. You're the first person that's ever mentioned this to me. And uh, (laughs) so I can tell you what happened. The the. Song you're referring to is a stock audio clip. And I get asked about that song all the time, but it's one that I purchased. Just, you know, you can buy stock audio clips online to use in podcasts. And I tried to find one that would fit the content. But what I did is... 30 seconds, just see. Yeah, and I just, I basically shrunk it down where I could use it. But when I shrunk it down, there was a little segment at the very end where it began the next passage, you know, and I recognized it was there and I just clipped it off because I could see it on the wave line in my editing program (laughs) Mm -hmm. one day. I saw that little blip at the end and I've cut it off. And I just did it a little thing for me, but I never thought anyone would ever notice it. But I was oh, yeah. No, I love it. Yeah. Well, listen, Kevin, I hate to rush off because I could talk to you all day, but thank you so much sure. for being a guest. Thank you for talking to me. This was so wonderful. Okay. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. And thank you to everyone for listening and watching. Please, historyofenglishpodcast.com and on Patreon and anything else that's down there. I'll talk to you next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.